Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 182. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying. We have had some sort of technical glitch happen over on Rumble's end, so we are streaming to YouTube today. Hopefully these problems will be ironed out and we will not face them again. Yes. Uh, this is our last live stream until Wednesday, July 9th. No, July 19th, because that would be tomorrow. July mm. 9th. July 19th, um, at which point we'll be coming to you regularly on Wednesdays at 11.30 a.m. Pacific. Uh, and watch out for a great guest episode of Dark Horse between now and then. Uh, no chat today, no chats from now on. We're going to be doing watch parties at our locals uh, from now on, starting on July 19th. So please join us there, and we'll be, uh, we'll be being active there uh, in the near future, including having watch parties every time we do a live stream there. Looking forward to that. It's going to be good. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be great. Uh, so today's topics include we're going to talk about some environmental toxins uh, that um, are disrupting the endocrinological systems and reproductive development of amphibians. Uh, but we ask why some people are blissfully assuming that that has no reason to have we, we have no reason to imagine there would be any effect on mammals, which includes us. Um, so we're going to, we're going to do that. And then, uh, you also want to talk about chest feeding. Yeah. I want to talk about a number of things, including chest feeding, but before that, I thought we need some proper evolutionary context. So there is a, uh, a hypothesis. Uh, I am frequently asked to deliver and I am, uh, I've taught about it to students, but I think I have not talked about it publicly about why males have nipples, a great evolutionary mystery that has been, uh, pondered over by, uh, by really everybody who thinks deeply about evolution. So anyway, stay tuned. That will be coming in advance of a discussion of um, the insights that are now being delivered on the CDC website. Oh boy, are they full of insight. They're full of something. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't even offer uh, nipple teasers like you do. No, no. This nipple no? teaser, uh, yeah. it's a, it's a one-off nipple teaser. Mm. So that's, um, yeah, it's bespoke. As I would hope most of them were. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, we are going to do a Q&A today after our regular live stream. You, so you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. And uh, we're going to tell you about all the other ways that you can find us and, and such at the end, uh, except for our sponsors, uh, who, as usual, we have three ads right at the top uh, from sponsors whom we carefully vet. And uh, let us let us truly let us let us go. I can't speak today. Speaking is only part of the battle. It's a big part of the battle. Ninety seven percent. But it's still only part of the battle. It's only by breathing. So <laughs> there's that as well as exactly the other three percent. All right. Our first sponsor this week is brand new to us. It's Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley makes a huge range of products. Everything we've tried for them has been terrific. But we are going to talk about I'm going to talk about just one of their product lines today, beef sticks. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and finished, entirely organic, and naturally fermented. The meat in these delicious beef snacks come from small, American-owned farms that practice rotational grazing. Paleo Valley makes honest, delicious products across the board, and these are just a few of them. While many beef products claim to have been grass-fed, often the grass, now often the cows, were only fed grass for a portion of their lives. And meat can be marketed as American-made if it was merely packaged in the U.S. Paleo Valley does not play these tricks. Their beef is from cows born and raised on American soil, entirely on grass, and these beef sticks are truly, completely fantastic. They're really delicious. 100% grass-fed beef, like that in Paleo Valley beef sticks, contains more calcium, magnesium, potassium, zinc, phosphorus, beta-carotene, and iron than grain-fed beef. 
It also has higher levels of several B vitamins, as well as vitamins A, D, E, and K, which are understood to enhance mineral and protein absorption. If you're thinking that Paleo Valley's beef sticks are like Slim Jims, you're wrong. For one thing, unlike Slim Jims, Paleo Valley beef sticks contain no mechanically separated chicken parts. For another, Paleo Valley's beef sticks are actually good for you. Ingredients hiding in most beef sticks and jerky include, and this is not a complete list, MSG, hormones, hydrogenated oils, and brominated vegetable oil, which, if you're wondering what that is, it was first patented as a flame retardant, and now it's in a lot of your food. Not if you buy Paleo Valley, though. Furthermore, virtually, virtually every meat snack on the market is made with a processing agent called encapsulated citric acid, ECA, which is included to extend the shelf life of those products. But the health effects of ECA on humans are to put it mildly, unclear. Instead, Paleo Valley Beef Sticks uses natural fermentation, which, cut, which gives the beef sticks a long shelf life without the use of harmful acids and chemicals, and with the added benefit of contributing to a healthy gut. Paleo Valley Beef Sticks are also keto-friendly, a great protein-rich snack to grab when you're on the go, like running out the door for a meeting or going on a bike ride, and they are utterly delicious. Paleo Valley doesn't cut corners. They source only the highest quality ingredients and are passionate about not only human health, but environmental restoration and animal welfare as well. And they're a family-owned company. Try Paleo Valley's beef sticks today. You'll be so glad that you did. Head over to paleovalley.com slash darkhorse for 15% off your entire first order. That's paleovalley, P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com slash darkhorse for 15% off your entire order. You won't be sorry. Yeah, they are really good. And oh, good. It is, uh, it is an interesting experience to look at a beef stick and not have to think, what's actually in that? Yeah, no, it's... Really fantastic. And um, a beef stick made of beef. That's the innovation here. <laughs> a beef stick made of beef, entirely organic spices, naturally fermented. The beef is actually uh, from cows that were, that were eating what cows are supposed to eat yep. from beginning to end. It's, it's a great product. Awesome stuff. Delicious and good for you. Our second sponsor this week is MD Hearing. We have friends and family who have hearing loss. There's a good chance that you do too. While we don't have need for hearing aids ourselves, we have a good friend who does, and we asked her to assess MD Hearing's newest product carefully and honestly. She did, and her testimonial is at the end of this act. MD Hearing makes high-quality, simple and effective hearing aids for a tiny fraction of what most hearing aids cost, helping bring audio clarity and capacity to people who might not otherwise be able to afford it. MD Hearing was founded by an ENT surgeon who made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. He kept the price low by simplifying the product, removing several rarely needed components. MD Hearing's new NEO model, that's NEO, costs over 90% less than clinic hearing aids. And the NEO is MD's smallest hearing aid ever. It fits inside your ear and no one will even know it's there. Other features include rechargeable batteries that last up to 30 hours and water resistance and up to three feet of water in their Volt Plus model. You don't need a prescription, which also means there's no middleman, another cost-saving measure. MD Hearing is now offering high-quality rechargeable digital hearing aids for only $149 each when you buy a pair. That's $300 for a pair of hearing aids. Here's the newest testimonial from our friend who has substantial hearing loss and who relies on hearing aids. We asked her to try this product, and this is what she said. I tested the Neo, the new in-the-ear canal hearing aids offered by MD Hearing. I was a bit skeptical, since I've never liked the in liked in the ear canal models, preferring the stability of over-the-ear sets. They were surprisingly comfortable and stable, staying put without coming loose, even when I wore them to exercise. I tried the Neo in several situations, from Discord voice chat to an in-person conversation in a room with a white noise generator, and they passed every test. It is true that they don't have the individual audiogram programming and smartphone integration of my usual hearing aids, but they have everything else for a tiny fraction of the price. They provide an absolutely stunning level of quality for pennies on the dollar. 
If you want MD Hearing's smallest hearing aid yet, go to mdhearingaid.com and use promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal. They are $149 each when you buy a pair. Plus, Dark Horse listeners receive a free extra charging case, $100 value. Head to mdhearingaid.com, that's M-D-Hearing-H-E-A-R-I-N-G-A-I-D.com, and use our promo code DARKHORSE and get their new buy one, get one, $149 each offer when you buy a pair. Our final sponsor this week is Uncruise Small Ship Adventures. Shouldn't that say Small Ship Epic Adventures? Maybe. I think it should. Okay. Uncruise okay. explores by sea and by land. They have boats that hold orders of magnitude fewer people than most cruise boats, and they take their passengers to some of the world's most magnificent places. Panama and Costa Rica, Galapagos, the Sea of Cortez in Mexico, Alaska, even our own backyard, the San Juan Islands. The small boats Uncruise uh, uses allow passengers to get real deep experience. Their largest boat can accommodate a mere 86 guests. Their smallest holds 22. These trips aren't about dress codes or glitz. People crammed cheek by jowl, unable to experience anything about where they are. CEO Dan Blanchard's background, story, and ethos are all impressive. He's the real deal. And so is his company. His boats take small groups of people to places that larger boats can't go, and the excursions are designed to bring people into deep nature without destroying it. When we spoke, we talked about the value of wild, roadless nature, about the environmental destruction that much of the cruise industry causes, and about exploration and observation. Our travel standards are very high in part because we've created and led trips to many of the places that Uncruise goes, and we have seen firsthand what most tours uh, that most tours do not match the hype. Our expectations were high for Uncruise, though, and Uncruise did not disappoint. They took us along on a week-long trip through the inland waters of southeast Alaska in early May, from Glacier Bay through the Tongass National Forest and down into Tracy Arm. Uncruise understands that the boat is just a tool. Their small ship cruises take guests through communities, locales on the ground, so that they can have actual experience. We were blown away by what we saw and what we were able to do. We saw sea otters with their pups, mountain goats, eagles in their nests, brown and black bears, puffins, orcas, humpbacks, arctic terns, too many species to list, and mile after mile of the most breathtaking scenery. It was definitely not a trip for people who want to just look at the view from the deck of a boat, though. Each day we got out into the environment. Hiking, kayaking, skiff touring, and even a cold plunge at the foot of a glacier for those so inclined. And the crew and naturalist guides were, to a person, kind, knowledgeable, and enthusiastic. The food was surprisingly good as well. The food preferences and sensitivities were handled perfectly. And, and every sailing with Uncruise is all-inclusive. Transportation, drinks, farm-to-table cuisine, daily excursions, everything is included. Uncruise is giving Dark Horse listeners a fantastic deal. $500 off their current cruises uh, an offer that you can combine with other savings, including their last-minute spring Alaska trips, which are already discounted. So start planning your next trip with Uncruise today and take advantage of our great offer. Go to uncruise.com slash pages slash darkhorse. Remember, to save $500 on your trip, go now to uncruise.com slash pages slash darkhorse. Again, uncruise.com slash pages slash darkhorse. Awesome. All right. Um, let's start by talking about herbicides. Yum. Yummy. Um, I remember when uh, it was assumed 
that uh, if you were a person on the left, you were more likely to be concerned about um, eating organic, for instance, and uh, and more interested in things like farm-to-table cuisine, while understanding that actual farmers were perhaps more likely to be in what the mainstream media dismissively refers to as the flyover states, right? And one of the things that we are seeing um, clearly now, although I, I do wonder how long it's actually been happening for, is an, an utter reversal, really, um, by, by many in the mainstream media who are nominally on the left, or at least who still think of themselves as being so, who are simply propping up big ag, big pharma, pharma big everything, um, big toxin at, at some you know, umbrella level, and um, with no apparent recognition that this is what they're doing. They're acting like this is the obvious position that people on the left have. So um, let's uh, share my screen here for a moment. This is um, the EPA uh, has... Plugged in. Yep, sorry. It, it, is, it is plugged in on my end. Um, uh, so uh, the EPA's site uh, talks about atrazine, which is a very common herbicide. In fact, apparently the most commonly used in, uh, in the US and what the EPA has to say about it is atrazine is a chlorinated triazine systemic herbicide that is used to selectively control annual grasses and broadleaf weeds before they emerge. Pesticide products containing atrazine are registered for use on several agricultural crops with the highest use on field corn, sweet corn, sorghum, and sugarcane. Additionally, atrazine products are registered for use on wheat, macadamia nuts, and guava, as well as non-agricultural uses such as nursery and ornamental and turf. EPA's oversight of atrazine is dynamic and includes periodic reevaluation through the registration review process. Over the years, EPA has consulted with the FIFRA Scientific Advisory Panel on a variety of atrazine topics. Well, we'll come back to that at the end of this little review of um, what some of the science, the so-called basic science, as opposed to the applied science, that is the science that is simply trying to understand what is true as opposed to uh, being driven to uh, uh, you know, develop a product. Uh, or, or solve a problem that uh, we know ourselves to have as humans. Uh, some of the basic science um, has been for a long time warning of the dangers of atrazine. And in fact, enough so that we actually talked about it, and uh, we recently responded to a question in a Q&A about this, but we actually talked about this briefly in our book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. I'm going to read this. Um, just one paragraph uh, from, this is at the end of most of the chapters in, in our book, uh, which came out in 2000. 21, we have what, what we call the corrective lens. So given the subject of the chapter, in this case it's sex and gender, uh, what might you do uh, to help you resolve whatever issues you might have uh, that stem from a hyper-novel modern environment and, and get yourself back into a state that is uh, healthier and more productive? So one of our corrective lens points, uh, finishing the sex and gender chapter in Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, is... Um, Keep contaminants away from fetuses and children. In several species of frogs, there is an established relationship between exposure to common environmental contaminants like atrazine, an herbicide, and an increase in hermaphroditic individuals. While sex determination in frogs is different than in humans, we will not be surprised if it turns out that some of the modern confusion around sex and gender ends up attributable to widespread endocrine disruptors in our environment. And we have a footnote there, an endnote. Um, Pointing to two research papers published in, uh, let's see, 2002 and 1998, which I'm going to talk about a little bit uh, here. 
which is uh, one of the research papers is from the excellent Tyrone Hayes, uh, a, a researcher out of, I think, Berkeley, if I remember correctly, who I was lucky enough to see at a conference sometime around then, late 90s, early aughts. Um, he's an excellent scientist and also a very dynamic speaker, which always helps. And um, he was already on this, this drum beat back in 2000, 2002. So here's uh, the paper that we uh, referenced in Hunter Gatherer's Guide. Uh, Hayes et al. Uh, indeed, he was at Berkeley, at least at the time. Uh, this is published in um, PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, which, uh, for those not in the know, if, if you care, you can you can tell that. I, I figured that because it was communicated by, uh, in this case, David Wake. You have to be a member of the National Academy of Sciences um, to publish in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences or um, be, be recommended by someone who is, and they have a limited number of recommendations they can make per year. I don't remember what it is. Um, but this, the title of this paper, published in 2002, is Hermaphroditic Demasculinized Frogs After Exposure to the Herbicide Atrazine at Low Ecologically Relevant Doses. And the paper is excellent. I'm not going to walk us through this in depth. There are a number of papers I just want to, to point to here. Um, but that title says a lot of it right there. Atrazine, which we've already talked about what the EPA says it is, um, and it's on... Um, a majority of um, corn crops and many wheat crops and sugarcane as well. Not allowed to be on, on crops that are um, certified organic, but um, it spreads easily, um, as we shall learn, through the air, through, um, through the soil, and, um, and through water. And uh, what we have uh, is after exposure to atrazine at what they're calling low ecologically relevant doses, which is to say we had been told that you needed high exposure in order for it to make any difference, uh, frogs are ending up hermaphroditic and demasculinized after such exposure. Now, as we say in Hunter-Gatherer's Guide, uh, the mechanisms of sex determination in frogs uh, are, are different from that in, in humans. Uh, but they too are vertebrates with two and only two sexes. And um, while, uh, while the mechanism by which what sex an individual frog is, is not, um, well, in some frogs it actually is, but it's a different origin of chromosomal sex determination in some cases, and it's a environmental sex determination in others. Um, still, uh, it is logical to imagine uh, that if other vertebrates are experiencing reproductive difficulties and endocrinological disruption after exposure to low doses of atrazine, uh, that we too should be concerned about the effects on other vertebrates. So I would just point out that there is a question here about the presumption of safety versus harm. And especially when you are dealing with a pesticide, you're dealing with something that is biologically active enough to disrupt an organism that is a threat to a crop. And what one hopes for, of course, is something that disrupts a mechanism that is so unique to the pest that it is not disruptive of other things in the environment and human health and physiology. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to do that because biology is, you know, we are all related and biology is conservative. It builds on mechanisms um, that unite us. And of course, there are mechanisms that evolve after our split from uh, a, a different clade. And you might occasionally happen on one of these things. But one should basically assume that something uh, effective enough at disrupting pests 
has a likelihood of interacting with human physiology in ways that are unpredictable and may take a very long time to discover if you have a system that is immune to perverse incentives looking for the evidence that it either does or does not cause such a disruption. Yes. Uh, and indeed, although the mechanism of sex determination is um, separately evolved in frogs and in humans, the pathways of masculinization and feminization and the hormones uh, that are relevant in those pathways, everything from the androgens, including testosterone, androstenedione, to the estrogens and progesterone, oxytocin, uh, the, the other steroid hormones, all of these things well predate. Uh, the last time that frogs and humans had a most recent common ancestor. So uh, there is plenty that is older uh, than the most recent common ancestor of frogs and humans, even though the particular ways that uh, it is determined whether individuals uh, become male or female um, is, are, are different. Uh, let me just show, you, show everyone a few more papers here. Uh, the very following, the Next year, uh, we have Hayes again, the Hayes lab out of Berkeley. Um, Atrazine-induced hermaphroditism at 0.1 parts per billion in American leopard frogs, ranipipians, leopard, uh, leopard, uh, laboratory and field evidence. Um, and just the beginning of the abstract here, atrazine is the most commonly used herbicide in the United States and probably the world. Atrazine contamination is widespread and can be present in excess of one parts per billion, even in precipitation and in areas where it is not used. In the current study, we showed that atrazine exposure at greater than 0.1 parts per billion resulted in retarded gonadal development, that is gonadal dysgenesis, and testicular oogenesis, hermaphroditism, in leopard frogs. And slower developing males even experienced oocyte growth, phytogenesis. Okay, so that is um, that is reproductive chaos induced by atrazine at very very low levels in the environment, even in places where it has never been applied in leopard frogs. Okay, uh, that's a that's a such an important and non-intuitive point is that the degree to which these things atomize into the world and exist at very low levels. That is to say. You might not detect them, but that doesn't mean that a biological system will not be disrupted by them because these biological systems are very sensitive to things that are designed to be disruptive in insects. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so the other paper that we referenced in, um, in Hunter Gatherer's Guide, and just like really a, a side comment about this, uh, is uh, Reader et al. Uh, from... Yeah, this was 1998, a few years earlier. Forms and prevalence of intersexuality and effects of environmental contaminants on sexuality in cricket frogs, Acris crepitans. Uh, so this is a, a different species, indeed a different family of frogs. These are hylids, these are tree frogs. And, uh, and just here's, uh, uh, here's one true thing. They say the process of sex determination and the influences on sex determination are not understood for this species. We are unaware of any reports that Acris crepitans experiences intersexuality or undergoes a sex reversal as a normal part of any of its life stages. Whereas um, they are finding, and they're specifically looking at uh, PCBs and PCDFs, um, but uh, they, they are finding intersexuality, general, again, reproductive chaos and endocrine disruption as a result of exposure in very low amounts. So um, I want to unpack a little bit of the expectation here, the evolutionary expectation. Mm -hmm. You've got plants, 
right? A, uh, a biological clade that has an insect problem because plants uh, are autotrophs. They take sunlight and they turn the carbon in the atmosphere into uh, structural materials. Insects don't do this. So insects have to eat something. Many of them eat plants, right? It's one of the go-to things. And in order to eat plants, insects have to be able to withstand the poisons that plants introduce in order to prevent insects from eating them. So insects... The so-called secondary compounds that plants put into themselves in order specifically to not be eaten. Right. So secondary compound. If you're a biologist and you find a compound inside of a given plant and that compound doesn't do anything in the plant. It's not part of photosynthesis or respiration. Um, if it's just uh, existing there without obvious explanation, the explanation tends to be that it is a poison designed to disrupt the physiology of herbivores, especially insects, in order to reduce the, uh, the amount of material lost to these parasites. So insects and plants have been involved in an arms race over this very thing since long before there were vertebrates. I think that's a fair statement. Yes. Yes. So the point is you should expect plants to create very uh, effective toxins and insects to be very resistant to them, which is why it is hard to deal with pests with insecticides because A, it's hard to come up with anything that overcomes the amazing architecture that insects have devised to detoxify this stuff. And uh, if you do, they have an evolutionary preparedness to evolve past the uh, whatever defense you have deployed. And so Much as pathogens will tend to evolve out from under uh, the, the killing effects of antibiotics. Uh, insects will, um, if possible, find a way to evolve out from under the killing effects of herbicides. Right. So what you tend to end up doing, if you come up with an herbicide that actually works enough to be useful, it tends to be extremely toxic and highly complex enough to defeat this system in insects. So at the point you've discovered something good enough to be an insecticide, you ought to be really worried about the safety of this stuff around other biological organisms. Well, but luckily insects are an entirely different evolution of life and therefore what affects them doesn't affect us. Would that that were true. Would that that were true, which right. actually, you know, there's an echo in here of um, of Jordan Peterson's uh, often misunderstood point about lobsters. His point is you've got a very ancient system that right. deals with serotonin, that this is a conserved uh, molecular intermediary in a process um, that is old enough to go back, you know, so That's that right. we find it in lobsters. And yeah. in this case, we find Ser a lot serotonin of... Serotonin turns out to be one of the, the oldest hormones that we know. And in fact, the most recent common ancestor of lobsters and humans both had serotonin. Right. Yeah. So in any case, insecticides are hard... Chemical insecticides are hard to produce. Why? Because the world has been engaged in an arms race between plants and insects forever and that arms race prepares the insects very well so yes we have some ability to do stuff in a lab that plants have a hard time doing but the ability to do something worth doing that is safe for other creatures is pretty minimal and you know again bad enough if you have regulatory agencies that are completely free to discover the harm and forbid the use of stuff that's actually bad for people and, and the environment if you have captured entities then you're just at the mercy of companies who will make billions of dollars producing these molecules that are not safe for people because they do work on crops, and that's where we're going to find ourselves. Yeah. Let's talk about the capture after we finish talking about the uh, the science. Sure. 
Um, so this still from uh, this reader et al. paper from 1998. So, and I include these older papers in part because that's what we cited, but also to indicate for how long research has been going on that is sending up the signal that says, beware, this, these are not as safe as we are being told they are, right? So uh, a couple more uh, pieces from the reader et al. 1998 paper. Um, uh, which I have apparently subtitled, They're Making the Frogs Militant. Uh, I, I see on my screen here for those who are carefully reading. Um, Sex ratios of cricket frogs shortly after metamorphosis strongly favor females, as was the case at the control sites in study B. However, at the sites contaminated by PCBs and PCDFs, there was a striking sex ratio reversal in juvenile cricket frogs, resulting in a high number of males. So sex ratio reversal uh, is a stunning result as re um, <clears throat> that um, apparently is emerging um, after exposure to some of these environmental contaminants. And then feminization due to estrogenic and or anti-androgenic contaminants has been well documented in many species of vertebrates. And they've got, this is again from 1998, so these are all going to be older than 1998 references, and I'm going to scroll down and show show us those. Various congeners, um, that's just uh, various congeners and mixtures of PCBs, PCDFs, and PCDDs possess a spectrum of estrogenic, anti-estrogenic, and anti-androgenic effects. We knew a lot of this a long time ago. Okay, uh, so these references, and this is only a tiny bit of the references that are out there, but this very article sites include number five ddt induced feminization of gull embryos so that's from 1981 ddt of course famously is off the market but most of these things aren't off the market in the u.s it is still used elsewhere yeah uh 20 environmentally persistent alkyl phenolic compounds are estrogenic that's from 1994 uh, synergistic activation of estrogen receptor with combinations of environmental chemicals from 1996. Reference 22, we have developmental abnormalities of the gonad and abnormal sex hormone concentrations in juvenile alligators from contaminated and control lakes in Florida from 1994. Reference 23, published in Nature, persistent DDT metabolite PPDDE is a potent androgen receptor agonist. And then we have just a, just, a, just a few more, and this is, again, not exhaustive, uh, from 1979, estrogenic properties of DDT and its analogs. We have factors affecting mammary tumor incidence in chlortriazine-treated female rats, hormonal properties, dosage, and animal strain. We have an ecological study of the cricket frog, 1984. Um, diethyl associated defects in murine genital tract development. That's, that's mice. So now we're, now we're talking actually about mammals uh, from 1985 and in utero and lactational exposure of male rats to one of these toxins. And um, I think, and that paper is this, and uh, it, you know, effects on spermatogenesis and reproductive capability. So many people will have heard tangentially or not so tangentially about um, lowering T levels, uh, lowering fertility in men across the world, uh, where, well, you know, one of the sets of explanatory factors is, is right here. So a couple more pieces of sort of expected, but oh, go ahead. And that research was published in 1992. 92. Yeah. As you say, we've known about this for a very long time. Very long time. So you've got insects most of which 
are involved in uh, parasitizing plants. So they've been engaged in this arms race that we've been talking about. In comparison, and you're going to help me here as the herpetologist, frogs... should have brought my alligator hat. Well, always. Yeah. But frogs are almost entirely uh, predatory. Entirely? Is it one of these things where there's no actually, exceptions or close to it? Actually, this uh, uh, a new piece of research that I've been wanting to talk about forever is a new speed, a new piece of work that suggests some pollinating frogs. Pollinating. But, like, it's it's one out of forty five hundred five thousand species of frogs. Well, that doesn't even necessarily mean that they're not. It could be that they're pollinating. They're going after insects that are in flowers, and they end up. They doing may some be herbivorous. It's it's sort of I, I need to I need to look into but it more. Let's but just yeah, say no, the, the vast, vast majority of them are vast they're majority yeah, they're insectivores. are insectivores. There are some that eat some larger prey but yep. the point is they are not herbivores they have not been involved in this arms race with plants for hundreds of millions of years That's right. right i mean they're second order herbivores like most of us are right but the point right. is the the insect surviving the encounter with the plant then detoxifies a great majority of the material inside the insect and when the frog eats the insect yeah it'll get a little bit of whatever the insect just ate so it will have dealt with some yep. toxin but very little a tiny fraction of what insects deal with so you would expect something that is built to disrupt insect physiology and because male and female despite what the modern academies claiming to have discovered male and female go back so far in an unbroken line of dividing things into a binary world of male and female, mm -hmm. that those patterns within animals that make you either male or female and not in the middle somewhere, except in rare disrupted cases. Which don't leave direct descendants. Right. So, you know, yes, they exist, but they're errors. Mm -hmm. The world is divided into male and female, not only within animals, but in an unbroken way within Animalia. Mm -hmm. um, and the point is, okay, so you've got mechanisms that in, are involved in taking something that is going to be male and going to be female and creating a dichotomous world. You've got plants which can survive better by disrupting something inside of an insect, but it's far easier to distort an insect than it is to kill it outright. Right, so distorting an insect by disrupting some process that causes there to be fewer insects. Gee, what kind of process could you disrupt that would cause there to be fewer insects? How about reproduction? That will make a lot fewer insects. So plants sure have explored every possibility here, but the point is you've got to give them a very high dose to actually do it because the, the insects have seen it coming from hundreds of millions of years. The frogs haven't, right? So the right. point is the frogs are more like us. And in fact, the frogs are probably more uh, resistant to this stuff than we are because frogs eating insects do get a little bit of this. They're not in a direct battle with the plants, but they do eat whatever the insects have consumed before the frog eats them. That, that, that does point in the might be more resistant direction. Of course, the thing that points in the opposite direction is that being amphibians, amphibians, amphibios, uh, wherein most species tend to have some part of their life cycle in water and some part on land, some part breathing, breathing, you know, breathing through the water and some part breathing through the air. Um, if either system is contaminated, they are likely to show the results of it. Yes. So, but I would also point out, though, that we actually don't know how that plays out because, yes, you and I are not absorbing this stuff from our skin unless we're directly contacting it. Presumably, some things do oddly yep. cross the skin, but um, 
presumably we're not getting very much that way. We're much more likely to get a dose of it, you know, on an apple that we don't wash or, you know, you buy a fruit salad somewhere and they didn't wash it because it doesn't pay for them to put in that kind of work. Um, But a fetus is in a weird kind of amphibious relationship with its mother. And so the point is the placenta, because this stuff is novel, the placenta is not presumably built to be on the lookout for pesticides that the mother has breathed in and taken a little bit into her blood because Mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been a feature of the ancestral environment. At least it would have been very uncommon for nature to create such an interaction. But a mother who breathes the stuff in or eats materials that have the stuff on it that wasn't washed the fetus is in a very sensitive position because presumably the one thing that would protect it, the placenta just isn't built for that job in this case. There's no way selection would have built it to do that job. Because it it hasn't seen it coming. Because it hasn't seen it coming. Right. right. So um, the story continues to get worse. Oh no. We have known research researchers have been doing the research that shows that um, atrazine and several other chemicals of which I have talked about a few here, um, definitely disrupt uh, reproduction and endocrine systems in amphibians, at least. And furthermore, there's a lot of research about the persistence of, for instance, atrazine in uh, soil and water. Here we have, um, let me make this a little bit bigger than you can show my screen here, Zach. Uh, published uh, in 2011, we have a Jablonowski et al. paper called Still Present After All These Years, Persistence Plus Potential Toxicity Raise Questions About the Use of Atrazine. The abstract reads, as one of the world's most heavily applied herbicides, atrazine is still a matter of controversy. Since it is regularly found in ground and drinking water, as well as in seawater and the ice of remote areas, it has become the subject of continuous concern due to its potential endocrine and carcinogenic activity. Current findings prove long-held suspicions that this compound persists for decades in soil. Due to the high amount applied annually all over the world, the soil burden of this compound is considered to be tremendous, representing a potential long-term threat to the environment. The persistence of chemicals such as atrazine has long been underestimated. Do we need to reconsider the environmental risk? So this paper, again, is published 12 years ago. And here are just a few more things from it. Additionally, recent evidence of endocrine disruption, activity of atrazine itself, and environmentally relevant concentrations is cause for serious concerns. In terms of a precautionary approach, we believe that the further use of atrazine should be halted or greatly curtailed. Atrazine and its metabolites can persist in water and soil for decades. Even more than 18 years after it was banned in Germany, atrazine remains the most abundant pesticide in groundwater samples. I think I have one more. Oh, no, that's it. Oh, um, yeah, that's that's it for, for that paper. So we know it's disrupting endocrine systems and other vertebrates. We know it persists for decades after it has stopped being used uh, in the soil and is found in seawater, in remote ice. Uh, so it is, it is everywhere. And uh, even in, for instance, Europe, which banned it a number of years ago, um, they, they still see it uh, in their soil. So in light of all that, let's go to one of our most trusted news sources, mm. shall we? Uh, this a slayer, a true slayer of mis, dis, and malinformation. Yep. Who's this going to be? Um, upholder of truth, liberty, and apple pie, I imagine. I mean, it being... Apple artificial. pie with just a hint of atrazine. Just a hint of atrazine because it's got wheat. It's probably got some corn. If you had, It's got apples. I don't know if you're allowed to use it on apples, but you're allowed to use it on corn and wheat. So, and they do. Um, I am talking, of course, about the New York Times. Mm. Yes. Um, this week, 
this week. Man. New York Times. This week, the New York Times published a yet another hit piece on RFK. Okay. Five noteworthy falsehoods Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has promoted. A longtime vaccine skeptic, Mr. Kennedy is leaning heavily on misinformation as he mounts a long-shot 2024 campaign. Thank you, New York Times, for protecting us from his misinformation. There are five falsehoods that they talk about in this article. We could talk about all of them. We're just going to talk about the one that's relevant to what I'm talking about today, right? So um, we go down to, he has made baseless claims about a connection between gender dysphoria and chemical exposure. In an interview last month with Jordan Peterson, a conservative Canadian psychologist and public speaker, Mr. Kennedy falsely linked chemicals present in water sources to transgender identity. A lot of the problems, he had said, we see in kids, particularly boys, it's probably underappreciated how much of that is coming from chemical exposures, including a lot of sexual dysphoria that we're seeing, he said. He referred to research on an herbicide, atrazine, in which scientists found that, quote, it induces complete feminization and chemical castration in certain frogs. Yes, it does. But, the New York Times continues, no evidence exists to indicate that the chemical, typically used on farms to kill weeds, causes the same effect in humans, let alone gender dysphoria. And according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, quote, most people are not exposed to atrazine on a regular basis. Well, we know for sure that the CDC is either just wrong or flat out lying. And with regard to the research um, that uh, uh, does not exist, no evidence exists to indicate that the chemical typically used on farms to kill weeds causes the same effect in humans. Well, let's just see about that, shall we? My God. Okay, so <clears throat> I simply did a search on Google Scholar uh, for atrazine human health effects. I got many thousands of hits, many, many thousands of hits. One typical paper, and I'm, I will go to the site here in a minute, but um, and, I'll, and I'll post this, but one typical paper finds that, sure, there are some concerning cancers and endocrinological effects that some research has found to be associated with atrazine. Yeah, but it's really not that bad. Atrazine disappears really quickly from the environment and from you, and the research wasn't as strong as it seems. Anyway, signed, yours truly, I kid you not, the Society of Chemical Industry. <laughs> That is who is putting out this, this work. Okay, so here it is. Uh, this is. This is published in the journal Pest Management Science. Okay, Pest Management Science, which I don't know if I can zoom in here really well, but you will see that their tagline is where science meets business. That is literally the tagline of the journal where this piece of garbage research was published. Okay, so give me my screen back here for just a minute, Zach, while I find, oh no, here we go. Uh, so here it is, here is their site, the Society um, for whatever, whatever I called it. Pest Management Science is the International Journal of Research and Development in Crop Protection and Pest Control. Look at that banner. Look at that banner. Are you interested in receiving this SCI journal? You too can have your crops sprayed with a crop duster and everyone will be happy and dead in no time. I mean, I have a lot more to say, but go for it. Well, no, I unfortunately uh, have to issue a retraction of a connection that I drew in the beginning of this segment. Okay. It's a weed killer. Everything I've said about insects is true but it is not relevant to a weed killer. You would have to do the analysis differently, which we could, but, um, yeah, but so nonetheless. Atrazine is an herbicide, Yeah. Um, but the insects uh, that are that are eating the atrazined uh, weeds are not, um, are not happy either. Yeah. Right. 
So um, there, there's, you know, there's plenty of insecticides out there. Most of what we're talking about is atrazine, which is an herbicide. Um, certainly the, uh, again, this is the pest management, the journal is called Pest Management Science. It used to be called, though they recently changed the name of the journal from, from um, to Pest Management Science from Pesticide Science. They just called it that. It was called Pesticide Science, the journal, um, published by the Society of Chemical Industry, whose tagline uh, is literally where business meets science, or was it where science meets business? I don't remember science meets business. So sorry. Um, so it strikes me, I don't know anything about this publication, but based on what you've presented about it, mm -hmm. it seems like an analog for the phony fields surrounding grievance studies, right? You've got a bunch of fields that pretend to be doing science and revealing new things that we didn't know about the way humans function. And it's, it's what I've called idea laundering. Yep. But here you've got business laundering the dirty details of the compounds it's pumping into the world mm -hmm. that, and, and their disruptive effect. So the point is, okay, so industry has created, you know, a, a nonsense field or the equivalent in order to make its products look safe so that people mm -hmm. can muddle any argument that is delivered. And... You know, they, they literally are creating the journals in which the people whom they fund can publish scientific research that comes up with the conclusions that they need them to come up with in order to keep dumping and pumping this crap into the environment that we all share. And we know, we know that whoever controls the press controls what is published. And in science, whoever controls what is published controls what research is done. And therefore, the New York Times' naive, sycophantic, insidious, and disgusting claim that, what do they say exactly, um, baseless claims um, about a connection between gender dysphoria and chemical exposure, there's no evidence? Well, there's no evidence in part because the, the places that are publishing any, you know, the, the research that would be relevant here will not publish such evidence. And... It's true. I don't. I don't find the absolutely one hundred percent clear research uh, that demonstrates this connection. But then those people who want to do that research aren't getting funding. Right. It, it, I mean, it's it's very much like in say twenty twenty two when we were beginning to see a few preprints and a few papers that were finding some problems with the mRNA vaccines for COVID, all of which to a paper said, but these vaccines are still the best thing you can do for COVID. It's, it's, it's don't hurt me walls in a different place. It's, it's okay. We're still, we still believe what you're telling us, but we did find this one little tiny problem. And that's, that's the kind of research you're going to get in journals like this. And it has a unfortunate echo in another place um, to the exact same pattern where, okay, here you've got the New York times, in exactly the place that the people who used to read the New York, you know, our parents who read the New York Times at the, you know, at the Sunday breakfast table. I read the, the New York Times. At the of Sunday course. But table. my point is at some point you start reading the New York Times and you think, what the fuck is this? Right. But back in the day before the what the fuck is this era, um, yeah. the New York Times would have been expected to be concerned about pesticides exactly. in the food supply, in the in the environment, et cetera. And the point is that expectation is being disrupted here by a higher priority. 
right? The corruption of the Democratic Party must be maintained against anything that threatens it. And Bobby Kennedy Jr. threatens it. And so the point is, the New York Times will now uh, embrace whatever position undermines Bobby Kennedy, even when his position would be a traditionally liberal position. So hold on. The echo is that this sounds a lot like Eric Topol, Mm-hmm. who actually fought to delay the release of the vaccine so that Trump wouldn't get credit for that, right? The point is, oh, Eric Topol, who's so very concerned about people suffering from from COVID, was actually cynically delaying this thing for political reasons. Here you've got right. the New York Times cynically uh, disrupting a obvious argument about the hazards of pesticides for political reasons. And the point is, well, is anything sacred? Is there any principle that you will adhere to even when somebody that you politically fear, uh, you know, says it, right? Right. Yeah. And, so. and you know, it, it's it's even worse than that. But I think Zach has something to say. Yes. Well, someone in the chat reminded me, you will want to remember, Deb, that Kennedy's term for these idea laundering scientists is biostitutes, which is exactly Absolutely. what they are. It's not science. It's yeah. paid they paid service to create a scientific article for something. That yeah. is what it is. Yeah. yeah. To create an, an illusion of science. Yes. Um so, okay, Europe actually banned, the European Union banned atrazine back in 2003. Uh, that's 20 years ago. And here, show my screen uh, one more time here. This is a 2006 article um, co-published by a, a research scientist and a lawyer. European Union bans atrazine while the United States negotiates continued use. So it was banned in 2003. This paper is published in 2006. It begins, atrazine is a common agricultural herbicide with endocrine disruptor activity. They just flatly state it. There is evidence that it interferes with reproduction and development and may cause cancer. There is. Uh, and the industry-sponsored research says, ah, it's not that important. Ah, ah, yeah, we, don't, we don't really think it matters, but um, I don't know why. Although the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, approved its continued use in October 2003, the same month the European Union announced a ban of atrazine because of ubiquitous and unpreventable water contamination. The authors of this paper, and I'm not going to read through all of it, but the authors of this paper reviewed regulatory procedures and government documents and report efforts by the manufacturer of atrazine, Syngenta, to influence the U.S. atrazine assessment by submitting flawed scientific data as evidence of no harm and by meeting repeatedly and privately with EPA to negotiate the government's regulatory approach. Many of the details of these negotiations continue to be withheld from the public despite EPA regulations and federal open government laws that require such decisions to be made in the open. One more little piece from this paper. Despite statutory requirements that agency advisory committees must be objective and publicly transparent, EPA officials held approximately 50 private meetings with Syngenta regarding atrazine in 2003. EPA established and utilized two advisory committees composed only of representatives of Syngenta and EPA without any public representation. EPA's 2003 approval of atrazine relied on the final recommendations of these two committees, characterized by EPA as joint efforts between EPA and Syngenta, to determine how atrazine should be regulated and where it should be monitored. Yeah, that. So, we're, we're, those those of us in the public who continue to think that the people whose job title suggests that they are looking out for us that they care about public health, that they recognize that their job in public health is about actually protecting the public's health 
as opposed to the profits of corporations, those people who still believe that need to wake up. This has been going on for a very long time. And for a very long time, there's been no one watching out for what's in our food, what's on our crops, what's in our water, what's in our air. We have the regulatory agencies, but they're doing exactly the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, we don't, I mean, it's a subtle distinction. We don't have the regulatory agencies. What we have is something that has hollowed them out and left them there so that we don't even, you know, if you knew, as we know when we travel in other parts of the world, that there's nothing protecting us, we can at least take some steps to protect ourselves. But when you have something that is ostensibly doing the job, that is specifically not doing the job, in fact, it's doing the inverse of the job, you get the danger of the false sense of security and the full exposure to this stuff. You know, I'm reminded of um, what I used to say, and then when we taught study abroad together, what we used to say to students before taking them out of the country. Um, and it, it's, a, it's an unintuitive point, which is that, you know, we're going to a land with much, many fewer lawyers than the land in which you grew up. And therefore, you have to take greater responsibility for your own safety. And I wonder if you want to explore that a little bit, because I, I think it's, yeah. it's relevant here precisely because what we are finding is that cryptically on actually the, the most important issues, we here in the weird world, including the U.S., have been living in a land effectively without regulation forever, even though we don't have like the gringo traps, the giant potholes that you might find on the street in Venezuela, for instance. Yeah, so let me, let me lay out a bit of the framework here. You have a system in which lawyers are empowered to find harm to find causes of action and to pursue it in a court on behalf of a class or an individual who's been harmed. That can result in a very uh, unpleasant relationship with lawyers because they're constantly looking for opportunity. But the point is that system in which lawyers are empowered to get paid for doing this does do a good job of discovering connections that can be established well enough for a court to see them and to recognize them uh, as uh, uh, as uh, justifying of a remedy. Yes. So we have a system that has been very safe, what Heather's calling a gringo trap. It's a joke. <laughs> the joke is if you're in Latin America, sometimes you will find a hole in the sidewalk, often with rebar sticking out of it. <laughs> Right. And the idea is that, you know, any person who's grown up in such an environment is not on their phone in danger of falling into one of these things because actually they've been trained that the sidewalk isn't as safe as it might be. But in an environment where you got lawyers looking for causes of action, the sidewalks tend to be pretty safe. Right. So there is this expectation of safety that is now completely out of phase for anything subtle or delayed. Right. There's an obsession with our safety at the instantaneous level and a complete indifference to our safety in the long term, right? Hence the madness surrounding mRNA vaccines, which were obviously a danger whose full extent we couldn't know for decades, right? And over an obsession with respect to COVID in the, in the moment, this comparison results in a complete complete mismapping by citizens who feel the, you know, the nanny state trying to protect them from little things all the time. They don't realize what benefit they get from it, but they also don't realize it does not correctly predict how well protected you are from subtle things. 
yeah. right? They can shorten your life. They can cause your children to have terrible deformities and you can't prove the connection so they don't get dealt with. Yep. Um, and, and it's no, it's, it's no one's job to deal with those things. The regulatory agencies uh, would have a very difficult, even if they were actually doing what they're supposed to be trying to do, would have a very hard time establishing causality. Uh, the politicians who would go after this are going to be long out of office before anything changes. And, you know, frankly, it's part, it's, it's, it's a big part of the appeal of RFK, which is that, uh, you know, he is, he is staunchly pro-human and pro-environment and has been for a very long time and is willing to look deep into what long-term trends are and say, you know what? It's not that I'm saying you can't ever put stuff on your crops or you can't ever vaccinate your children. It's that we deserve to have those processes and products be safety tested before we do so. Like, wh why, how did we end up reversing? How did we end up making the default position be, we're going to add anything we want and we're going to inject anything we want and we're going to have you take anything we want you to take and the burden is on you to prove that it's not okay in order to opt out as opposed to the default assumption is opt out, don't put that on my food, don't put that in my body until you've actually done the safety testing that needs to be done. So we have the wrong presumption. You also have to establish these things in a slanted academic environment, right? Yes. So, and I, I want to pick up on the concept of opting out because it's really the central one here, yeah. right? Let's suppose that you and I as biologists look at this and we say, oh, there's no way that's safe. There's no way that's safe. It is too fundamentally disruptive of biology that is longstanding, et cetera. I don't want any part of it. I certainly don't want my kids to have any part of it. Mm -hmm. I want out. Yep. You can't even opt out. That's right. right. What would you have to do to substantially opt out? Well, you'd have to stop eating in restaurants. Maybe you'd have to keep your windows closed and filter the air, right? You can't, you can't control what people are spraying on their crops and opt out, you know, and the point is these processes don't know boundaries. Diffusion happens. The stuff persists way longer than we think it does. It moves around on animals who don't know that they shouldn't be eating something that was just sprayed. So there is no way to fully opt out at all. You can spend a huge effort and a lot of money reducing your exposure, which we do, right? Yeah. We do this. And the point is how effective and, do we actually- have been for decades. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yes, you can spend more for organic food, right? And there is a huge push. There's a huge, presumably industry-sponsored push to make fun of people who insist on eating organic. There's no demonstrated benefit from eating organic. There's no nutritional difference. We didn't say nutritional difference. We said and, hazard. And I also don't believe that. Right. I don't really believe it either because for lots of reasons. Yes. For one thing, uh, you know, a Roundup Ready crop has, you know, trade-off wise been compromised in order to induce this one characteristic that's uh, agriculturally desirable at a financial level. So yes, there will be nutritional differences, but it doesn't matter if there are nutritional differences. Yeah. What if I don't want Parkinson's disease and I suspect that pesticides are involved in, in uh, creating Parkinson's disease. How much do I have to alter my life to really eliminate those things? Mm -hmm. Radically. It's just not possible to do it completely and to do it substantially is a radical increase in your expenses 
and it shouldn't be this way. The fact is the presumption, and you know, we can get into the, uh, the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle is logically the right thing. It is a bit difficult to instantiate well. It can be taken to an extreme. That it could be onerous. It can be onerous, yeah. but logically speaking, it's the baseline right? These things are dangerous until proven safe and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. You will never get there in a world where the those who have a perverse incentive can gain control over the academic environment, over uh, the legislative environment, over the regulators, right? You just can't get there because it, they're perverse incentive is concentrated. They can disrupt our ability to exert a rational uh, control mechanism every time. And it's what they do. And it's making us... Yep. Uh, it's making us unsafe and we have no idea how much of the obvious ill health that the citizenry experiences. You just stand on the street corner, stand in an airport, watch people go by. Yes, they are living longer. How healthy do they look? What is causing that, right? We cannot protect people from this as long as the industries that make the profit have so much say over what the regulations look like. And yes, that's a very boring and tired point, but it's never going to be untrue. Yeah. Right. It's fundamental. No, and in this, I mean, we've said this before, uh, and many others have as well. But uh, we've become ugly, we've, and and th th this is just one, admittedly subjective at the holistic level measure of our collective ill health. But when we were growing up, almost everyone was attractive, and more so even in the fifties, right? And it's not true anymore, and it's it's sad. And this is this is not an attack on the individuals who find themselves having been, you know, maimed is the right term. Maimed, having been, you know, birthed into a world where there there are not the full set of choices to actually opt out uh, when what we all should have been allowed to do was choose whether to opt in, mm -hmm. and. We have been disallowed from that across domain after domain after domain. Speaking of which, yes, you want to talk about chest feeding? Oh no, I wanted to talk about uh, nipples first. Okay. So um, we are regularly asked as evolutionary biologists, what is the explanation for male nipples? And frankly, I love the question. Many. I will. I will just say that um, I, as a female evolutionary biologist, have been asked that question probably less than five times. Uh, and uh, you have been asked that question a lot, in part because you say that you, you know, that you think about it and you have an idea and all this. But um, I do believe that this is more likely to be a question asked of well, a man with nipples. It's liable to be asked a lot of a man without nipples, but they don't exist. So mm -hmm. we can't test that hypothesis. It exists as a pure that thought is not the alternative hypothesis, and you know it. I do. <laughs> Um, all right. But let's uh, let us. So let's just say uh, many. In fact, I think all evolutionary biologists have pondered this question at some point. And it's a wonderful one, which intersects very well with a concept. Uh, I don't want to drag people too deep into the weeds, but yes, you do. Decades ago, uh, I came up with an adaptive test, a test to see whether a particular feature of organisms should be presumed to be a product of adaptive evolution or not. And the reason I came up with that was not because this wasn't obvious, I thought it was obvious, but because there was a battle in evolutionary biology over the question of whether evolutionary biologists were leaping to conclusions 
imagining that various features of organisms were the result of adaptation when maybe, you know, there are lots of other evolutionary processes. Could it perhaps be the result of drift or whatever? Um, so anyway, I came up with a test to free myself from that stupid question, which disrupts everything if you let it get away from you. And the test, basically... Can you just um, make a lot of arm gestures while you describe it? You want me to do a lot of arm waving? <laughs> like you should. <laughs> okay. Um, the test involves, it's, it's a conservative test. It will miss some things that are actually the result of adaptive evolution. And it is not 100% conclusive. It will lead you to the correct presumption if you apply the test correctly. And it is conservative uh, in a, it's got a fail-safe in it. So the, it basically asks whether several characteristics can be found inside of a particular trait. So let's say we're talking about the, um, I should have gotten a image for this, but there is a an extinct reptile, a, a uh, dinosaur epoch reptile called a polycosaur, which has a sail on its back. This was a clade. There were lots of different polycosaurs. But anyway, Heather will bring up a picture of a polycosaur. So these animals had a sail on their back. We don't know what the sail was for because there are no polycosaurs that we can observe or, you know, bring to the laboratory or anything like that. So we are left with this structure and no ability to run a test in the present on what it does. So my point is, yeah, it's true that we don't know what it, what, what it does. One example of something it might do, it might be a solar panel that allows these animals to warm their blood by turning that sail towards the sun. But again, we can't observe them, so we don't know. But my point is that question, the mystery surrounding what the sail on the back of a polycosaur does, is not the same question as whether or not it is the product of adaptive evolution. Obviously, it's the product of adaptive evolution. And the test to show that this is the, the, the correct presumption is, does it involve high levels of complexity? Biology, adaptive evolution is the only process that creates high levels of complexity. So is this complex? Yes, there will have been a developmental pathway that has produced this polycosaur, a polycosaur sail. Um, you know, it has a structure, it has bones, it has skin, all of these things that we can still detect in the fossils. So it has complexity. It has an expense. It's made out of materials, right? Materials that could be redirected, materials and energy that could be redirected to something else that would enhance the fitness of the creature. And it persists over evolutionary time, right? Complex, it has an expense, and it persists over evolutionary time. And my point is, if it were not producing a benefit to that organism that exceeds that cost, then over evolutionary time, it would be eliminated right? And we wouldn't see it. Instead, what we saw is a whole clade of organisms, different species that had these things, which says that some organism that had less of one uh, was not outcompeting those that had, had more of them. All right. So here's the reason that I like this nipple question. The nipple question passes, the male nipple question passes the adaptive test, right? It's not hugely expensive, but it is an expense. Nipples are made out of material. That material does not have an obvious benefit in males, but there's a complexity to it. That material and energy that goes into producing a male nipple could be redirected into other fitness-enhancing uh, behaviors 
or structures. And so what the hell is going on? Given that male nipples are not useful in the feeding of offspring, why would selection not have economized these things out of existence long ago? Now, here's the hypothesis, which I, uh, I have come to believe very strongly is likely to be true, but needs a test. The hypothesis is that if you have a mechanism, if you built into human beings or to uh, any uh, mammal, if you built in a mechanism any that would remove nipples when the male physiology program had been triggered, anytime something was going to be a male, you economized away the nipples, then what you've got is a mechanism that turns nipples off. Once you've got a mechanism that turns nipples off, A, it can go wrong. Occasionally, a female who is otherwise reproductively capable will lack nipples and her children will presumably starve. Um, and B, it creates a target for some, let's say, plant that you're eating to disrupt if it wants, if it sees you as a parasite and uh, is looking to reduce the level of parasitism. Can it disrupt that pathway now that that pathway exists? So the hypothesis is that the pathway is so dangerous where milk production is essential to the raising of offspring that selection has built in a resistance to economizing it away so that no female is born without nipples and therefore those offspring don't starve for the lack of the ability to feed them uh, early in, in childhood. Now, again, this is a hypothesis. It, is not, it has not survived a test so far as I am aware. I will say a valid scientific hypothesis requires a test. It at least needs to be testable in principle, hopefully in practice, but at least in principle to be a valid hypothesis, something like, let's say, oh, I don't know, string theory, which um, doesn't provide a mechanism for testing it, is not even, not only is it not a theory, it's not even a hypothesis, right? It becomes a hypothesis at which it makes a test. So. In this case, there may be better tests. I may come up with something more elegant and easier to accomplish. But I would say the correct test that I spot is if it is true that selection has actively protected nipples from being removed in males because of the danger that it would pose in uh, females to have such a pathway, then we will find that there is a protective mechanism. In other words, the degree to which different genes are exposed to experimentation, evolutionary experimentation, varies. There are some genes that are highly experimental because they're involved in arms races, and there are other genes that are very conservative because disrupting them creates a cascade of bad effects. I would argue that we will find that the genes involved in the production of nipples have been given a uh, that protective characteristic that prevents experimentation with their elimination developmentally, and that that is why we see them, right? And in fact, that would be the adaptive feature, right? The nipples would be a manifestation of that adaptation, which has moved nipples out of the experimental category into a highly conserved uh, category of the genome. Conserved. It's not. It's not exactly a question of low evolvability, um, but it's a. It's about. Um, and, a, and a sort of a separate kind of uh, conservatism around what could be changed. It's it's hard to operationalize them in part because we don't. Uh, there's so many possible mechanisms by which that might happen. But um, the prediction then that you are making for your hypothesis is that there will be something 
to be to be specified upon discovery um that is uh that is producing lower rates of change in those genes than in adjacent other otherwise comparable genes that do something else yeah i wouldn't say adjacent because yeah. one of the things that happens is that genes get moved it. around the the genome to protect them from experimentation i would point out though in thinking about this this morning this is what i'm really arguing for is the inverse of what i have elsewhere called an explorer mode Right? Explorer modes are places where evolution looks around design space for solutions at a, um, in a direct way. This is a place where such experimentation is reduced um, and it creates a kind of uh, genetic sacredness or uh, some other kind. It creates a, a, you know, a taboo around genetic uh, experimentation. But in any case, that's the basic hypothesis. All right. The reason that I raised that hypothesis has to do with something that uh, I at least ran across yesterday, which is the CDC's entry in its glossary page. Zach, do you want to show it? Okay, so here is, this is on the CDC's site, Center for Disease Control, in their glossary. I think I can read it. So the glossary has three entries that I'm showing here. Breastfeeding, the practice of feeding an infant or young child breast milk directly from the breast. Also, see chest feeding, nursing. And then next entry, breast milk slash human milk, right? Breast milk is no longer sufficient. Milk produced by the human mammary glands to feed infants and young children. Breast milk and human milk can be used interchangeably. And then third is chest feeding, a term used by many masculine-identified trans people to describe the act of feeding their baby from their chest, regardless of whether they have had chest-slash-top surgery to alter or remove mammary tissue. I mean, that's not even, I mean, that's terrible. Um, but that's not even complete, I mean, because the, the story this week was this I think this this dude has been on estrogens who's uh been feeding whatever thing is coming out of his nipples this baby right and so anyway my point about the glossary though is that what we've got is the cdc so i i tweeted yesterday that 10 years ago if hackers had breached the cdc <laughs> website's wall that they could have put something this absurd on the cdc's page uh, you know, uh, as a, an act of, uh, as a prank, as an act of vandalism, but that effectively vandals have taken over the CDC, right? Yeah. Now, there are a couple things worth extrapolating from this. One, there is a game being played here. Weeks ago, we talked about the absurdity of chest feeding. We collectively, I don't, we also talked about it on Dark Horse, but we were talking about chest feeding, which at the time, what we were talking about were trans men. These are people born female who therefore have female mammary glands feeding their offspring. And the suggestion slash coercion to call this chest feeding with the purpose of not offending such people. And to call them fathers. Right. 
Now, that's insane. Yes. However, you are at least talking about biological females feeding infants with female breasts, and then we are talking about what to call them, right? Right, and that's what's in the glossary as well. No, because the glossary is opening the door to whatever it is that is being delivered being considered feeding. Can you show it to us again, Zach? I hadn't, I hadn't seen it before. Uh, milk produced by the human mammary glands. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know what is coming out of that guy's chest. Yeah. But even if he's had fake boobs put on, he doesn't actually have mammary tissue. Well, I, I don't actually know. Do you know the distinction in, because, no. well, first of all, there is a case in bats. Yes. In which bats have been, male bats have been shown to lactate. This is in the wild. Yes. This is presumably not the result of disruption. This and is, remember what bat? It's a pteropodid, which is a yeah, uh, mega bat yeah. from the old world, a uh, large fruit bat, flying fox. Yeah. Um, and they have been observed uh, to lactate and actually to feed offspring, I believe. So yes, the question right. is whether or not breast tissue is, um, is fundamentally different or yeah. whether it is basically latent mammary tissue that can be activated. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, in any case, the idea that the CDC is broadcasting as if it is a scientific conclusion this obviously political fact, and I would point out, with no apparent thought to the impact on the baby, right? This is the orientation well, this, here. Across the board, all of these things, the, you know, the most defenseless members of society of all are just being completely disregarded. They're and they're being disregarded here at a couple of different levels, right? We are talking, so breast is best, right? We have talked about the logic of why that is true, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a political assertion. That is a biological fact. Yes. Okay. So what we are talking about here is a case in which there might be an argument that breast is not best. Let's take the case of a... Um, a female to male trans person who has an offspring, right? Now, that female to male trans person is liable to be on uh, sex-distorting hormones. So there is a question about whether the disruption to the baby actually reverses the normal logic of the superiority of breastfeeding. Right, but that, I mean, this, this is like saying we're going to fix the, you know, fix some imagined or fix some real ratio uh, that we would like to fix in college, uh, whereas all of the discrimination that may have happened that led to that ratio happening at the K through 12 level. You're talking about someone who wants to, who wants to feed their baby from their body. If they can do that, it's because they were gestating probably. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the even bigger issue. 
right? Oh. That, um, you know, no, I, I don't think that if you are a woman who is taking testosterone because you're confused about what sex you are, that you should be um, feeding a baby milk from your breast, but you definitely shouldn't have been gestating for nine months either. And frankly, like over and over and over again, you know, you've got at the, at the just really, really broad brush level, you've got two kinds of effects of hormones. And I've said this before, and it's much more complicated than this, but somehow even this level of different kinds of effects is missing from all of the trans ideologues arguments. Activational effects of, for instance, testosterone are those that have an effect in the moment and at the point that you stop being on the testosterone, those effects will disappear. Organizational effects have effects that lay down pathways that establish anatomical and physiological realities that even if later the testosterone stops, the effects of it do not. They effectively organized, hence organizational effects, organized your body, your shape, your physiology, your anatomy um, in an irreversible way. If you have been on testosterone as a woman and you decide, oh, I actually want to become a mother, and you won't call it that because you're that kind of confused, but I, you know, I want to um, gestate a baby, and may, maybe you have one of the better, but still, frankly, should be criminal gender doctors who says, oh, well, you should at least go off the testosterone while you're pregnant. Still, what is having been on testosterone? Um, what are the effects of that going to be on your pregnancy? And um, once you're not pregnant anymore, presumably you're just allowed to go back on it and then you're feeding that directly to your kid. So I, none of this is good for the child. So uh, this, was, this was the point I wanted to get at. The most fundamental thing, you, you, in, our, in our book, we yeah. talk about um, love. We talk about what it is and the most fundamental kind of love, the elemental kind from which all of the others are derived is maternal love of offspring, right? Yeah. In mammals, that's where it starts, right? Now, the problem is, let's say that you were um, born female and you feel that your... Um, your sex is at odds with your body. Well, you are either in a position that that is your priority, in which case you should not be producing offspring because actually this is inconsistent with the well-being of your offspring and your obligation as a mother is to your offspring fundamentally, fundamentally. And so the point is maybe... You're born female, you feel male, and you say, you know what, maybe I feel male, but my parental obligation supersedes that, right? And I'm going to just suck it up and deal with the, the dysphoria, and I'm going to live as a female, right? And I'm going to do right by my offspring. Or the point is actually I can't live like this, in which case, oh, then don't have a kid, right? Because the point is, what do you mean you feel male and you want to have a baby, right? Like, no. That's inconsistent, one. And B, your obligation is to the baby, right? Parents sacrifice for offspring, period, the end. That's what parenthood is. Yeah. And if you can't sacrifice... And you can choose not to be a parent. Right. 
and do. But once you've chosen to be a parent, that is your priority. Right. Now, this then raises that other issue that you were talking about, uh, which I don't guess we don't have uh, a screenshot of, but this person, um, this male who had, quote-unquote, transitioned to female, who was nursing an offspring and... I could find it. I don't know. I don't know if we want to see it or not, but... Yeah, well, in any case, uh, people can certainly conjure the idea of a person, a born male, uh, transitioned to female, nursing a child, or nursing is the wrong term, but engaging in behavior that looks like nursing with a child, and give a thought for a moment to... Yeah, do you want to... Do you want me to show that? Yeah. I don't know. You don't think so? I don't know. I don't... I don't, I don't... Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think very, anything about this person is um, sane. Yeah, no, it, well, it's insane. And maybe not, maybe not. And actually, here, here's the reason we mustn't, I would argue. That baby is going to grow up and face a world in which people have looked at this image and politicized it. Yeah. And... That baby did nothing wrong. That baby did nothing wrong. They have been harmed by a society that has rules against uh, people gratifying them sexually with children, right? Very important rules, fundamental rules for a reason, right? And then we have somebody engaged in some kind of pantomime, a man appearing to nurse a baby, uh... Um, with no thought to what the impact on that baby will be, not only of the behavior itself, but of the fact of uh, having been observed in this person's self-gratification at whatever level it existed. I mean, it, it's, it's the reveal that there's no parenting going on, that parenting uh, needs to have a selflessness at its core, a recognition that it's not all about you anymore, and at some point it will become entirely not about you and entirely about your your child and, and and you have to prioritize them and instead what we are doing now is um reveling in narcissism reveling in selfishness and in well i feel like this and therefore i get to have what i want and that's just not the way either reality or reality works or society is supposed to work and society isn't working, but it's increasingly the way that society is being forced to sort of chug along until it finally dies. So I want to connect the two topics that we've covered yeah. today. There's a behavior that I would call, uh, I don't know, getting your foot in the door. Okay. Mm. So weeks ago, and literally it was weeks ago, we were discussing the absurdity of chest feeding in the form that somebody born female transitions to male and then breastfeeds an offspring and that we have to call it chest feeding for some reason, right? Yeah. That is an absurdity at the linguistic level, right? Mm -hmm. It is a tiny fraction of the absurdity of the, at the biological level of a person born male who then pantomimes breastfeeding, even if they're leaking at the breast somehow because of some hormone they've been taking. Yeah, right? there's some drugs apparently that can promote such discharge. They can promote a discharge, but the point is that ain't feeding. Right. But my point is, once you carve out the idea that, oh, we used to say breastfeeding, but that's 
disrespectful to some fraction of the population. We must now call it chest feeding in order not to disrespect certain people. Oh, you're calling it chest feeding? Hey, guess who else has a chest, right? right. Now you've got some dude leaking at the breast, right? Mm -hmm. Photographing himself. And the point is, oh, well, you, you said you're okay with chest feeding. How is this not chest feeding? And the point is, ah, you got your foot in the door with people born female who want to nurse children and don't want to have it called breastfeeding because it's disrespectful. And now you got dudes doing it. You got your foot in the door and then you kick the thing wide open. Here's the connection to the other topic. The GMO industry, Monsanto in particular, mm -hmm. created a market for itself with Roundup Ready crops. Yep. Right? Roundup Ready crops are crops that have been engineered to tolerate an herbicide that weeds cannot tolerate, right? That's the technology. That technology involves spraying this stuff early in the life cycle of crops, Yep. right? That gives, it's not safe, but it gives a lot of time for the thing to degrade in the sun. It gives a lot of time for it to be washed off the plant so that at the point that you eat, you know, if you sprayed it on early so that the plant erupts from the soil, gets a jump on the weeds, um, and then it doesn't, you know, once it's a mature plant, it doesn't need that jump on the weeds. So you're not spraying it late. And then, you know, a cucumber emerges from the vine, right? The point is, how much of that herbicide does the cucumber have? Some. It shouldn't. That's bad. But mm -hmm. it's a tiny fraction of what would happen if you sprayed it on the cucumber. Now, here's the point. Roundup Ready Crops got GMOs through the door. And the particular Roundup... Uh, compound into the agricultural space. Yeah. At which point it was discovered that it could be used as a desiccant. That's right. And you could spray it on wheat. When do you do that? Oh, at the end, after the wheat is dead, right? So that it doesn't get mold. You keep it dry by spraying Roundup on it. Well, wait, you just sprayed it on something we're going to eat. It's like, it's not, it's the opposite of the cucumber where the cucumber didn't get sprayed because the plant was early in its life cycle when you did the spraying. And now you're spraying it on something that we're actually going to grind up and turn into loaves of bread, right? Who said that was safe? The point is in the mind, you kick the door open with Roundup ready crops. And then the point is, well, it's the same compound. You said we could spray it on the, on the crops, right? So now we're going to spray it on the freaking wheat. And, you know, it's like, okay, chest feeding by someone born male is linguistically twice as dumb as chest feeding by somebody born female who's transitioned to male. It is biologically 200,000 times as dumb. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. This is the same thing. Spraying Roundup on your cucumber patch early before there are any cucumbers, that's dumb. Yeah. Spraying it on wheat at the end of its life cycle to keep mold from growing on it. The very wheat that will be turned into the bread that you eat. Yeah, that's orders of magnitude more dumb. But the point is, you kicked the door open, you know, after you got your foot in, and the point is, mentally, it didn't seem that different. So whatever. That's how it happened. Yeah. How are you, how are you, you going to stop it? There's so many things to worry about. Just, just trust them. You know, right? I know this roundup. I know it's not good. Well, it's not one thing. You just yeah. you're doing two totally different things, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's like the difference between, you know, uh, a glass of water and a lake. You probably could drown in a glass of water, but you're more <laughs> likely to drown in a lake. I think moderns would be more capable of drowning in a glass of water than people 100 <laughs> years ago. That might be. Yeah. yeah.
Totally. I think we are, we are creating, among many other uh, disabilities, the ability to drown in amazingly small bodies of water. <laughs> that seem to be what we're working up towards. Uh, is there anything we can, okay, can we make this a little bit more upbeat before we, like, we're not going to be back for a week and a half, and this is terrible. I mean, this yeah. just, like, every, everything here, the, like, the, the endocrine disruption that we are doing across the board, and... Um, you know, as it turns out, the atrazine is an herbicide. Um, it's not ex explicitly targeting um, an endocrine system of another animal, but there's plenty of actual toxins that we are spraying on things in order to get at the, the so-called pests, you know, the pesticides that are actually endocrine disruptors that we are also just, you know, spreading across our landscape, into our soils, into our water, and we can't evade it. And... And the New York Times takes a mocking tone and says, there's no evidence that that even, yeah, it messes with frogs, but there's no evidence that could have possibly have any effect on humans. Have you, have you guys ever thought scientifically for half a second? Like in any way, do you in fact believe in evolution? You, you claim to be the ones who are all about evolution. I don't think you understand a damn thing. Yeah. Well, Anything this is, it. this is a, this is a basic failure. Uh, of our educational system and yeah. you know it, it comes at, at different levels but you know we meet people all the time oh, i wasn't good at biology well i know what happened to you yes. you had a bad biology teacher who didn't know what they were doing and they tried to make you memorize the krebs cycle or they overly focused on you know yes uh, kingdom phylum etc yeah but, it, it, memorization memorize the 20 minutes right memorize them memorize right, memorize it was like, boring and it contains to do that no power and yeah. you probably didn't get a good grade and you felt like you weren't good at doing biology but the result of all of that yeah. is that people do not a they are denied the benefit of understanding what they even are, right? You're a walking miracle in a world of other miracles. And you, you, in order to appreciate that fully, you need to understand the biology. And even better, if you understand that that miracle came about without a miracle worker, right? Yeah. Um, so people are denied that value, which is a tragedy, mm -hmm. but it is also, it is, mentally crippling because you do not intuit the degree to which your body is capable of dealing with all of these insults but the cost of the insults is massive and you know again yeah. back to the the idea of what happens if you stand in an airport and just watch people walk by and ask yourself how healthy do they look right how many people have to pass by before i see somebody and say actually that person is just attractive in the mm -hmm. sense that we used to mean it mm -hmm. right um you know we are paying a huge price for things that we don't see and the new york times and uh, all of its you know petty little companions in the what used to be called journalism are still beating the same drum yeah where it's you can't prove that's what did the harm it's like okay but why aren't you interested in what did right precisely Precisely. We've got a rise in all of the indicators of poor human health. And there is very little evidence for any one particular thing that has changed in the 20th century being the cause for any of them. 
Because how could there be? Because everything changed at once. But what we did do was we started spraying our lands and filling our water and filling our bodies with a bunch of chemicals, many of which are actually known to be endocrine disruptors and reproductive and de reproductive development halters and chaos agents. And unfortunately, it's worse than that. It's one of the things, yeah, it's always worse than that. Uh, one of the things that we do touch on in our book, and I think is eventually going to become uh, a much broader field, is there are all sorts of things that are capable of doing biological damage that do not come in the form of uh, physical interference or physiological disruption at the chemical level, yep. right? Like light levels, like noise pollution, right? That there is a kind of disruption that you can do to a biological organism that hypernovelty basically exists throughout a wide spectrum of possible mechanisms of interference that we do not intuit. When you flip a light switch, you do not feel like you could be doing anything that could do biological damage, right? Are you telling me that being exposed to light does biological damage? It does informational damage, yeah. right? <clears throat> you don't intuit light, it. What we can see is only a tiny fraction of what the spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum is. And uh, we feel vaguely, unconsciously, subconsciously, after a long time inside that something's not quite right. But we can't see the difference with some light. With some light, we can even see it. But for a lot of light, we can't see it, but we feel it. Our health, our health is affected. Well, but not only that, you've got the difference in the spectrum, which has been edited down to that which you can directly perceive because that's what causes you to buy the bulb, you know, right. in, the, in the shop. We've got the frequency of the flickering, which you can't see, but has impacts. We've got the implication about what time of day it is based on the spectrum of the light. There are all kinds of ways that electric light can be destructive and we don't intuit it because we tend to think uh, of creatures with the partially correct analogy to machines, right? Uh, lots of people partially. say, oh, we're not machines, we're not computers. Mm -hmm. I actually think we, we are. We are not machines in the narrow sense of a car, but we are, we are uh, aqueous machines and computers. And fantastically, I mean, self-building, right? Okay, you're a machine, but you're also a self-building machine, right? How easy is it to yeah, disrupt I don't us? like the word machine here. I know, but um, but the, uh, the basic point is our intuitions are crappy over what can possibly do damage, and that has made it very easy for people who have a perverse incentive to get in the road of establishing that actually there's a kind of harm that is uh, indirect but profound, um, and that's where we are, is we're having the same argument again and again, where mm -hmm. the people with the perverse incentives are in a position to overwhelm our ability to establish that actually this is bad for us. Yep. I don't know what to say to make it, to, to bring us back up I before th we I end. I thought so. that was pretty uplifting. No, you didn't. <laughs> All right. Maybe I didn't. Even the, even the dog is disgusted. It's like, I'm out of here. Yeah. I want to go outside and bark at something. Man's greatest invention. Yeah. Can I go bark at the CDC? Please. Yeah, they won't listen, though. Um, all right. We are going to take a 15-minute break and then uh, come back with a short, probably today, live Q&A. Ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. We're then uh, going to be gone for a week and a half. Come back on Wednesday, July 19th, 1130 a.m. Pacific. 
and we'll be doing a watch party, which is where the chat will, the, the chat-like thing will be happening from now on, on Locals. So join us there. Um, and find us lots more places, including we've, we'll have another guest episode coming out um, before our next live stream. And you're right here at Dark Horse. I, of course, write at naturalselections.substack.com. We have Twitter subscriptions up for, for Brett. We Twitter subscriptions, which are almost impossible to see, so you have to go looking for it. Um, so anyway, please do that. We have darkhorsestore.org with uh, various awesome merchandise. Psyop until proven otherwise. Saddle up the dire wolves we ride tonight. Um, Pfizer, the breakthroughs never stop. Just some of the things that you can find there at darkhorsestore.org. Um, shirts, bags, um, stickers, all the, all the things. Uh, we, of course, have this book, which we talked about some today, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, available everywhere. Um, you can get signed copies at Darvel's um, here in the San Juan Islands on Orcas. Uh, and they, of course, have a website, too, so you can order signed copies from them. And um, we are going to begin to encourage people on our Patreons to go over to Locals, um, but we are not going to shut down our Patreons. So um, we, we're going to have um, a, a last private Q&A um, based out of my Patreon this month on the last Sunday of the month. And then we're going to hopefully try to encourage everyone to go there, but um, to go to Locals. Um, but we've got on our Patreons access to the Discord channel. We've got um, at the higher tier levels access to conversations that you have on the first Saturday and Sunday of every month. And um, lots of great conversations. Um, people sitting around the virtual campfire talking and, uh, and agreeing and disagreeing and uh, everything in between. Non-toxic, hypoallergenic, grass-fed conversations. I can't promise that, actually. You can't? No. No, I can't. All right. Um, I promise. Once again, check out our wonderful sponsors. This week, that was Paleo Valley, MD Hearing, and Uncruise. Links look for in the show notes. And we are supported by you. We appreciate you subscribing, liking, sharing. We've got this channel here at Rumble. We've got YouTube. Uh, and, of course, if you listen on Spotify or anywhere else, um, you know that we appreciate... Uh, your appreciation and that if you hear something that particularly resonates do share it with someone who you think would uh, appreciate it or benefit from it until we see you next time be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside be well everyone